Welcome to sermons from First Alliance Church, equipping you to become a fully devoted and faithfully engaged disciple of Jesus. Here's today's message. Well, welcome again to First Alliance Church. Uh, My name is Andrew, and I'm so happy to be with you this morning and that you've joined us wherever you're at, tuning in, whether you're in your living room or your bedroom. Uh, We are continuing our series through the beginning of the book of Acts this morning as we've been watching the crucified and risen Jesus continuing his work now through his spirit in his people, the church. So as we get into that this morning, I invite you, as always, have a Bible open. We believe that the Bible is God's word to us and gives us everything we need for life and salvation. So let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 to 13. Acts chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. It says this. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? referring to the healing of a lame man in chapter 3. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no under name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of, of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, They were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Living God, I ask that you would give us this grace, that you would send your Holy Spirit upon us, that even as the Spirit inspired Luke to write these words, that your same Spirit would illumine our hearts and minds to receive them, to understand them, and to be transformed by them today. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. I remember being a kid and loving to play this game. The game is called Trouble. And I remember the TV commercials 
that would always play for this game. What's that phrase? It's fun getting into trouble. And now as a parent, as I have a critical ear to what my kids are hearing, I say, please don't tell my kids that it's fun to get into trouble. Because the fact of the matter is, getting into trouble isn't fun. It downright sucks. I mean, when you get into trouble, think about a time when you were a kid, perhaps, where you were called into the principal's office, or maybe you've been in trouble recently with your boss at work. What do you feel? You feel pressure. You feel this physical weight pushing down on your chest. You feel anxiety and fear because you're under pressure. You're in trouble. Just before Jesus went to the cross, he said, this to his disciples. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you will have trouble. And what we're seeing in our text today is is the fact that Jesus was right. I mean, here are Peter and John. They're under pressure. They're in trouble because they've just healed a man who was lame from birth, a man who had been at the temple most likely all of his life. He was a regular facet of the temple. He would go there to beg alms, and they had healed him in Jesus' name. And so now the leaders have called Peter and John before them to give an account for what's happened because they're a little bit afraid This whole Jesus movement, which began as a small band of students or apprentices of Jesus, is now growing exponentially. There are now thousands of people in Jerusalem who believe that Jesus of Nazareth, who we know was crucified, they believe he was raised from the dead. And they're putting their faith in him. They believe that he is God's Messiah. And so now Peter and John are the leaders of this movement, and they are in trouble. So let's ask the question, why are they in trouble? Why are they in trouble? Is it because they just healed a guy, you know, and did some good? No. No, that's only the latest event in a series of events that need explaining. You see, people have been speaking in tongues, announcing to others in Jerusalem from different parts of the world what was going on. This crippled man was healed, and and what gets them into trouble isn't the fact that he was healed, it's the explanation for the healing. Here's the explanation, and this is in a nutshell, what we see over and over and over again in the book of Acts as as people ask Peter and the apostles, what on earth is happening? Here's the explanation. Jesus of Nazareth is God's Messiah. He died and he rose from the dead to forgive our sins and bring us back to God. And he is now the king of the world. And we need to repent. We need to turn back to God and believe in Jesus. That's what's getting them into trouble. It's the message about Jesus that salvation is found only in Jesus. And it disturbs the powers that be. It it disturbs the beliefs and the systems of that culture. Look at verse 2. It says that they, talking about this group of leaders, were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, it's really cool to see here that as 
Peter and John are brought before the authorities, uh, they don't do what a lot of us tend to do under pressure. So when I'm put under pressure, maybe for something I've said before, uh, my tendency can be to soften the message, right? Or, uh, you know, Andrew, you said this, uh, you know, what's going on? And, and I nuance it, soften the message, soften the edges, try to, try to make it taste good for people, right? We tread lightly. And one of the purposes that we see of the church, we've been seeing this in the book of Acts, is to bear witness to Jesus, to share the gospel, to make disciples. And we encounter this this tension. We encounter this tendency to want to soften the edges of what the gospel is and what it means for people's lives so that we can relieve the pressure from us. Right? Think about people at work who have asked you about maybe some of the thorny issues that Christianity presents to our modern society. We all know what it feels like to be under pressure. And one of the things that Jesus wants us to know as his followers, one of the things that Peter and John knew, is that the gospel of Jesus is not a mild-mannered, docile message. It's a destructive message. It it packs a punch. It's it's really full of dynamite. It was in Peter's day, and it is in ours. I love what Tim Keller says. He says, in our time, the Christian faith is seen as something traditional rather than radical and disruptive. Nothing could be further from the truth. Properly understood, the message of God's kingdom will subvert the dominant beliefs of our own culture. And that's what we're seeing in this text, that the gospel was subverting the belief of the Sadducees that there is no resurrection, that the gospel was subverting the general held belief that there is no way that a man who died a cursed death on a tree could be God's Messiah, or that that man's name would be the name that saves and heals the world. There's no way. But look at what Peter does. He doesn't soften the message. He knows. He knows that what he's saying is disruptive. But he doubles down on it. He doubles down on the gospel. Look at his explanation in verse 8. It says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this. Let me make this perfectly clear. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He totally doubles down on the message and on the power of the name of Jesus. And he goes even further. He, he, he draws on the prophet Isaiah to say this is, this is what is written all over Scripture. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. And then there is this sentence, which is probably one of the most glorious, bold sentences we find in all of Scripture. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other, name, no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. 
I mean, think about it. For a first century Jewish person to hear this, these authorities hearing this message, Peter telling them that the name by which they can be saved is the name of Jesus. I mean, their own text says this in Isaiah 43, 11, I am the Lord and apart from me, there is no savior. There is only one savior. And so the real claim that Peter and John are making is that this Jesus, this man is the Lord. He's the one the whole Bible points to. He's God's man. He's God's son and God's Messiah. And there is no one else who can save us. I mean, wow, that is dynamite. But let's think about today and our secular post-Christian culture, and really we should say cultures, because there are many. Is this a mild-mannered message? Or is it disruptive? Does what Peter says here affirm or subvert the dominant beliefs in our culture? I think it's very subversive. Because secularism, and and by secularism I mean in general the world trying to live without God, secularism has its own blueprint for salvation, doesn't it? The secular blueprint for salvation is that we find salvation in in self-discovery and in self-expression and that fundamentally there's nothing really wrong with us. What's actually wrong with the world is that we have all these constraints placed on us or traumatic events happen to us that prevent us from accessing and living out our true original self. And what we need according to that blueprint, is first to be freed from all those constraints that prevent us from discovering our true self. Does this sound familiar to you at all? As you listen to our culture, as you see commercials on TV or listen to the radio or read contemporary books, I mean, the blueprint for salvation today is self-salvation. And for a long time, I've, I've felt that the spirit of the age is, is summarized well in William Henley's poem, Invictus. And you'll recognize these words. The poem ends saying, it, not, it matters not how straight the gate or how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. That's the air we live and breathe every day in Toronto in 2021. Secular salvation is is telling us all the time that as humans, we're fundamentally okay. We just need to take charge of our lives. We need to throw off all the constraints of the narrow gate and of uh, the punishments of the scroll, and we need to find our own way, be our own master. And the gospel disrupts all of this on so many levels, but here are a few. The gospel disrupts this because it insists on salvation. I think even saying that word today, the word salvation, in our culture, it seems extreme, right? We're seen as extremists or alarmists. I mean, most people become really upset at the notion that we need saving, I mean, think about the words of the song, guilty, vile, helpless we. Those are not words that sit well in our culture. But the gospel insists that we're not okay. 
that there is something deeply wrong with us. See, the Bible teaches that we were made good, and as Christians, we always want to affirm that, the goodness of God's creation. But we also need to hold with that truth the fact that we rebelled and we've been infected by sin and that sin has worked its way into us and in the world to, to twist everything. And so much so that in the Bible, we have what it calls the sinful nature living in us, this sinful nature. And so in actual fact, my own self is part of what I need saving from. The gospel insists on salvation, and that is deeply disruptive. Also, the gospel is disruptive because it insists that salvation cannot be found in ourselves. Over and over and over again, the scriptures are clear. Yes, we were made good. Yes, we were made God's image. We rebelled and we sinned, but our help and our hope and our salvation cannot be found by an inward turn to find our inner goodness or our divine spark. It comes to us from the outside. Salvation comes to us from the outside, from God himself entering into our humanity and from there redeeming us, from there rescuing us. It's a disruptive message. And third, the gospel is disruptive because it claims that Jesus is the only one who can save us. I mean, Peter's words are so scandalously clear. Salvation is found in no one else, only in Jesus. God became a man, and that man died to save us. He covered our sin, and he's made us children of God. It's this incredible story of grace where I literally had no role to play in my own salvation. All I did was I received. I received his grace. I received his gift. I admitted that, yes, I'm in the wrong, that, yes, I am sinful, and I need this Jesus to cleanse me. I need him to forgive me. I need to receive his life and his sacrifice in place of mine. The gospel is disruptive because it says that we're more sinful than we ever dared believe and yet more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. And the way of Jesus opens up for us not just a new way of self-discovery or self-fulfillment. I actually think that a lot of modern Christianity is actually the secular blueprint for salvation of self salvation, but just with a Christian gloss. I think we can see that a lot in the North American church. But the true way of the gospel does not insist uh, that we now have a new way of of self-discovery and fulfillment now with the name of Jesus, but rather we have the way of self-denial. The gospel announces to us the way of the cross. In Luke 9, 23 to 24, Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple, and that word means apprentice or student, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and and follow me, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for my sake will save it. You see, Jesus knew that sin and the sinful nature 
don't just need reformation, they need mortification. They need to die. That that's the only cure, and it's only the cross of Jesus that can carry that out in our lives. But through this diagnosis of sin and of the cure of death in Jesus in rising into new life, we actually enter into a far deeper hope. Because all that talk about death can seem really heavy, but it's actually through death to self and sin that we experience resurrection. I mean, nothing can be raised to life unless it first dies. And the gospel opens up to us a deeper hope than we ever thought possible. Not just a better life, but an entirely new life. I love what C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity when he said this, your real new self will not come as long as you're looking for it. It will only come when you are looking for him. That is God. And there's a paradox here. It's the paradox that in giving up your life to Jesus, you find life. And in laying yourself down, you receive in Jesus who you really are. Who we are, friends, who you are can only be discovered when you give all that you are to Jesus. Salvation is found in no one else. And so when we do find Jesus, or rather he finds us, and we put our faith in him and give him our loyalty, pressure from the world will come. Like I said, Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble because the gospel is deeply disruptive to the beliefs of our culture. So when that pressure comes, how can we handle it? How can we have power under pressure as we see Peter and John here having power under pressure? The great missionary Hudson Taylor made a profound observation when he said this. He said, it doesn't matter how great the pressure is, what really matters is where the pressure lies, whether it comes between you and God or whether it presses you nearer to his heart. This is a profound insight that speaks to how we can have power under pressure. I mean, we can't really control whether or not pressure comes, but we can control how we respond to it. We can control whether the pressure separates us from God or whether we leverage that momentum to drive us to God. And I want to be real here. It's not lost on me that most of us, when we talk about evangelism, or when we find ourselves in pressure situations like Peter and John, when we are being asked to give an account for our faith, we often don't even know where to begin. Fear can cripple us, right? Mark Sayers puts it this way, that in our contemporary post-Christianity in which perfection and morality can be achieved by adopting the pro pro progressive cultural sensibilities, we fear a different kind of damnation. In the post-Christian imagination, to hold the wrong moral opinions will not send one to hell, but it could see you sent to the outer social darkness, to gnash your teeth in social irrelevance. See, what we fear in today's culture is to break the mold, to hold to any belief that would go against our modern cultural sensibilities because we fear rejection. 
we fear rejection so deeply. And I want you to think about this. It's probably the case that the degree to which we fear this rejection shows the degree to which we actually, on some level, believe in the secular blueprint. It's a question of where does our sense of self, our sense of security come from? Does it come from the world or does it come from God? And we need to think very honestly about this and name this fear, this fear that we have of people rejecting us because of the gospel. And what we see in Peter and John is that the gospel had so gotten hold of them and transformed them that they knew that they needed to obey God rather than people. And that's what they say when they're threatened. And if we see this in ourselves, the good news is, friends, that the gospel just has more work to do on us, that God has deeper levels of his grace and love to show to us. And here's the key. Here's the key to having power under pressure when we fear rejection. It's to know without a doubt God's gracious and radical acceptance of us in Christ. And it's God's acceptance that counteracts the world's rejection. It's God's acceptance that counteracts the world's rejection. The fact that the eternal, almighty, holy, transcendent God of the universe has accepted you, welcomed you as a son or daughter through Jesus. I mean, that is far deeper and far more crucial. That is a more crucial acceptance that can anchor us when we're under pressure. God's perfect love casts out fear. And we see a lot of fear in the church, don't we? We see a lot of fear in, in Christendom or post-Christendom. And one of the things that we do not see in the example of the early church is fear. We don't see fear. We don't see a, a fear of the world and its ideas. We don't see a fear of being rejected for Christ. We don't see a fear for losing their lives. In fact, they know that it's probably going to happen, that their faith in Jesus is going to land them in trouble. And yet, they have this confidence because they are anchored in God's acceptance of them. And that's not just something that lasts a day or a week or even a year. That is eternal. God's acceptance of us is of eternal significance. To have power under pressure, we need to allow God's acceptance to counteract the rejection of the world. And secondly, we need to know God is with us. You need to know that God is with you. And one of our first responses when we're under pressure one of the first places we go is to ask, do I have what it takes? Do I have what it takes to deal with this? Do I have what it takes to come up with a brilliant answer? Do I have what it takes to stand strong in my faith? And we default to self-reliance rather than dependence on Jesus. And what is announced to us in this story 
with Peter and John being called to account is the presence of God with his people by the Spirit, carrying them through it, anchoring them in his love and acceptance and enabling them to speak the gospel. I mean, look at verse 13. It says, Peter and John were unschooled, ordinary men. But it says, they knew they had been with Jesus. And then in verse 8, it says Peter was filled with the Spirit. Remember, zoom out on the story of Acts. God is, is now making his people the place of his temple presence. We saw that with the symbolism of, of tongues of fire over his disciples. And what we see here is just the outworking of God's presence with his people. People of God, do you know he's with you? When you're under pressure, do you know he is with you? Do you know that at the moment that you are being called to account by the authorities, there is a higher authority in the room? God himself. God's presence is what gives us power under pressure. It's his presence that gives us power under pressure. Friends, the good news that we need to hear and receive and live out today is the fact that God is with us under pressure. Even when it feels like he's forsaken us, he is with us. He indwells us by his spirit and wants to fill us and teach us and empower us each day to live for him with everything that we have. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, I thank you for the witness of your apostles to you and to your death and resurrection, your lordship, and your good news. I ask that you would fill us with your spirit, that your spirit would speak to us the word that we need to retain and the word that you want to really drill into our hearts. Jesus, I thank you that in the midst of a culture where your gospel disrupts and upsets so much uh, modern sensibility, that your gospel truly is good news, that you are with us when we're under pressure, and that we can trust in you, be anchored in your love as we follow you each and every day. Continue to guide us as we respond with this song of worship, I pray. In Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more on us as a church and ways to connect, please visit us online at firstalliancechurch.org.